This podcast contains violence, adult themes, and material that may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. True North True Crime is produced on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. It was once said that the moral test of a society is how it treats those that are in the dawn of life, those that are in the twilight of life, and those that are in the shadows of life. On May 29, 2017, a witness saw a teenage girl talking to the driver of a white service van in an alley in Vernon, British Columbia. She is just 18 years old. Her small frame climbs into the vehicle, and the van drives away. She is never seen alive again. Five months later, RCMP would make a gruesome discovery. This is the death of Tracy Genero. And this is True North True Crime. Welcome to episode 8 of True North True Crime. We want to start off today's episode by doing a little listener mail, or more like a listener review. Yeah, this one was posted to Apple Podcasts and comes to us from Dax2008. Thanks, Dax2008. Quote, I'm not usually a fan of the two-person conversational style podcast, but I'm really enjoying this one. These two hosts take the cases seriously and get all the facts out with respect to the surviving family and friends. Thanks for that, Dax. We really do try our best to be respectful to the victims, their families, and to try to tell the truth of these stories. And I know we've said it before, but we really do appreciate those five-star ratings and reviews on Apple. It helps with our visibility. As usual, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TNTCPod or over on Facebook at True North True Crime. Or you can send us an email at truenorthtruecrime at gmail.com to suggest cases we cover in the future. Or just to say hey. So in this episode, we're going to be talking about the tragic death of Tracy Genero. This case is still pretty active and has a lot of moving parts. We will do our best to break it all down for you. We were able to put this episode together using a series of news stories as well as BC Supreme Court documents. So in order to really tell this story, we need to talk about Canada and its missing persons problem. And more specifically... British Columbia. But before we talk about British Columbia's issues, we need to acknowledge that the largest population affected by this are missing Indigenous women and girls. In fact, in 2015, the federal government launched the Canadian National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. The findings exposed significant issues and lack of protection for Canada's most vulnerable populations. We are not educated enough to talk about the inquiry, but if you are interested, the findings can be found online. We do truly hope to present some of those cases in future episodes. However, 
we want to make sure that we are in an educated position to do so. So let's talk about British Columbia specifically. In 2018, it was estimated that there were 12,532 missing people in the province. That is almost twice the national average. For comparison, Ontario, the most populated province, only recorded 7,497. This, for us, was a shocking number. As I'm sure a lot of true crime buffs are aware, BC has a history for predators. In the 1980s, child killer Clifford Olson murdered 11 children. From the 80s to the 2000s, it is estimated that Robert Picton murdered upwards of 49 vulnerable women. And in 2009, Cody Lejabokov murdered three women and one teenager. It is often rumored that these men are not the only serial killers in the province. Since 1970, it is estimated that over 80 women have gone missing or were murdered on the Highway of Tears in northern British Columbia. Vulnerable women often go missing on Vancouver's notorious downtown east side. And women and teens also seem to be going missing at alarming rates on Vancouver Island. Recently, people have started to go missing in the scenic Okanagan Valley. Which brings us to Vernon, British Columbia, and Tracy Genero. Vernon is a town in the southern interior of British Columbia. This area, known as the Okanagan Valley, sits on the ancestral and unceded territory of the Okanagan and Shuswap people. The town itself has a population of about 50,000 people. Agriculture is the main resource in this part of the world. Some of the best fruits, vegetables, and wine come from the Okanagan and the surrounding area. So I feel like we say this every episode, but the town does struggle with addiction and crime fueled by addiction. And persons who have fallen through the cracks due to socioeconomic conditions, mental health issues, and substance misuse disorder. But... Overall, Vernon is a decent place and a summer and winter tourist destination. It's easily in one of the most beautiful parts of the world. So at the time of her disappearance, Tracy Genero was an 18-year-old girl living in the Vernon area. She was a small woman weighing only 80 pounds and standing 5 feet tall. Her hair color ranged from blonde to brunette to red. And one of the things noticeable about Tracy was her bright blue eyes. She was co-parented by her mom, Lori, and her dad, Darcy. Tracy grew up in Vernon. She was a lively kid, described as loud, quick-witted, and funny. Her dad remembers her love of animals and her ability to make great sound effects. Here are a couple of great quotes from her dad. Quote, she was awesome. She was always having fun, always making crazy, funny little sounds. She was like our own little Michael Winslow from Police Academy he said, referring to an actor known for his vocal sound effects. Quote, I don't know what it was about a duck, he said. We take her down to the duck park here, and it was just, it would send her to the moon, even in the last couple of years. She was like one of the little kids at the duck park. Tracy had two older siblings, a sister and a brother, and all three of them loved to draw, a talent they inherited from their mother. Apparently, Tracy also had a talent for poetry and other arts. In fact, one of her school administrators remembers her poetry having a depth of understanding wise beyond her years. Her grandmother said she would light up a room. Tracy was tomboyish, 
fiery, bright, and willful. But she was also described as fragile, and not just because of her small frame. Yeah, sadly, as Tracy pushed into her teens, she got involved with a bad crowd. Drugs and some bad decisions began to impact her young life before she was even 18 years old. As addiction took hold, she turned to sex work as a means of survival. Social media posts reported by the Globe and Mail paint a picture of a person who was navigating some intense life issues for a person her age. Facebook posts on three separate accounts that appear to belong to Miss Genereau paint a picture of a sociable, outgoing teenager who often found herself in decidedly adult situations. In a December 10th, 2013 posting, a person writing under the account name of Trisha Lee Genero wrote, Six-month probation, released today, yo. A January 23rd, 2014 post from the same account showed a young, blonde-haired girl lighting a pipe and asking if anyone had tequila. On January 4th, 2016, quote, Okay, so, two-minute phone call. He says I'm so terrible and he hopes I die, dot, dot, dot. Can't everyone just give me a break? I'm gonna give up real goddamn soon. She also appeared to struggle with her mental health, posting on January 2016 under the name Tracy Genero Nixon, quote, depressed, might go to the psych ward. 51-year-old Bob Zimmerman was the last person to see her before she went missing. He had struck up a friendship with her, having seen her on the street. This is from a CBC article. Quote, Zimmerman said he got to know Genero and her parents after he saw her sitting by the side of the road, apparently working in the sex trade, in the spring of 2016. He has three daughters of his own and decided to pull over and talk to her. And this is Bob talking now. She was so young for what she was trying to do. I told her, go home. You've probably got a mom and and a dad worried about you. It kind of broke my heart. He would see her around and they became friends over time. She wanted so desperately to beat her heroin addiction and he tried to help, including once when he and her mother tried to get her into hospital for treatment. Just before Christmas of 2016, Tracy Genero was a passenger of a car that flew off the road and rolled over several times. She broke her spine and had to undergo surgery that shrunk her by three inches. According to her father, she had been desperately trying to turn her life around. Quote, she realized she had made some pretty bad decisions in life. She was still climbing out, but... She realized the bad choices she made and stopped making them. She had begun volunteering at the SPCA and wanted to become a veterinarian. Very little has been released about the last time uh, that Tracy was seen. In fact, I've seen a lot of posts from the RCMP asking for people to help put together that timeline. But on May 29th, 2017, Bob Zimmerman saw Tracy down by the old bottle depot in Vernon, B.C., Yeah, a lot of the locals kind of refer to this as Vernon's red light district. It was around 4.30 p.m., and Zimmerman states that he saw her talking to the driver of a white van, and then she got into the van. Although the van had a logo on the back, that information, as well as the description of the driver, either is not known or has not been released. 
Tracy was known to check in with her family a couple of times a week. When she failed to do so, her family reported her missing right away. This was in the first week of June 2017. Yeah, Tracy's family would state that they reported her missing three times before the RCMP would issue a public statement. But Tracy was not the only person to be reported missing in the area. Along the 75-kilometer stretch between Vernon and Sycamuse, at least five women, including Tracy, have vanished from February 2016 to September of 2017. On February 22, 2016, 27-year-old Caitlin Potts went missing. Caitlin is a young First Nations woman and mother who worked a job at Tim Hortons as she was going through school. On the day that Caitlin went missing, she had messaged her sister stating that she had met someone on Kijiji that was going to give her a ride to Calgary, but that she would be back that evening for sure. She was last believed to be in the Enderby area, but searches have also been done in Kelowna as well as Alberta. Caitlin has not been located. On April 27, 2016, 32-year-old Ashley Simpson was reportedly last seen walking in the Silver Creek area near Salmon Arm. She was carrying her pink suitcase. She's an outdoorsy type who enjoyed hiking. She also worked as a cook with her father in hunting lodges in remote areas near Alaska. There are reports that her ID was found in a sewage truck in northern BC. However, until this day, Ashley Simpson has still never been located. On July 19, 2016, 46-year-old Deanna Wirtz said goodbye to her husband as he was going out of town for work. She spoke to relatives that day about going for a hike near her home in Salmon Arm. Deanna is an avid hiker and has trekked the backcountry around her home on Yankee Flats Road for more than 15 years. It is not uncommon for Deanna to be gone all day, but she has not been seen since July 19, 2016. So then on May 29, 2017, as we know, Tracy Genero would go missing in Vernon, B.C. And then on September 2nd, 2017, 32-year-old Nicole Bell would go missing in Sycamus, B.C. The mother of three lived in Malacqua, B.C. Bell is described as Caucasian, 4'11", with blonde hair past her shoulders. She has a piercing in her nose and above her upper lip. She occasionally wears glasses. Her cell phone has been located in Salmon Arm, but Nicole has not been. Each one of these stories is tragic and deserves to be heard in their entirety, but for the sake of time for this episode, we are trying to focus on Tracy. And something happened in the fall of 2017 that changed the scope of this investigation. Right. So on Monday, August 28, 2017, the Vernon RCMP responded to an incident where a woman reported being threatened by a man with a firearm in a North Okanagan rural area. Yeah, more specifically, a masked man approached her with a gun, causing her to panic, and she veered off the road as she was trying to escape, crashing into a bridge, and then she fled on foot, leaving her shoes behind. Investigators have established that the woman had attended a pre-arranged meeting with a man in the area of Salmon River Road in the North Okanagan. 
The meeting had been set up via an online website utilized by sex workers. The victim reported to police that upon arrival at the agreed-upon location in her own vehicle, the male suspect produced a firearm and threatened her. Yeah, apparently from what we've been able to uncover, the masked man told her to go to a a location that he wasn't associated with, and she showed up to a, a, a farm with a closed gate. Like a locked gate. Yeah, and then he, like, came up behind her. So he basically blocked her in so she couldn't get anywhere. Yeah. And because of this incident and some other incidents that we're going to get into later, on October 13th, 2017, the Vernon North Okanagan RCMP would issue a warning to the public and specifically sex workers to take any measures that they deem necessary to safeguard their personal safety. On October 17th, a man would be arrested and charged with the August 28th gun mask assault. You see, it turns out that not only were there women going missing in the area, but there were also multiple alleged violent altercations between sex workers and one specific man. So let's talk about what we know about this man and his connection to Tracy Genero after a quick break. We are back. So, like we stated, on October 17th, 2017, investigators would arrest a man who resides in the area of Salmon River Road and is known to frequent the Okanagan and Shushwap areas. He would be arrested in relation to the August 28, 2017 assault with a gun and the mask. His name is Curtis Wayne Sagmoen. So, what do we know about Curtis Sagmoen? So Curtis Wayne Sagmoen is described as rough, although he has kind of a diminutive frame. He is five foot six, 140 pounds. He's skinny, often quite filthy, and is missing most of his teeth. He presents as a bit of a cowboy with a drawl of some sort. He was a pile driver by trade and often worked on construction sites, oil fields, and bridges in Alberta and British Columbia. Yeah, some of his co-workers actually have stated that he was incredibly unsafe to work with. Curtis was born in 1980, making him 37 in 2017. Most of his criminal records were traffic violations, like leaving the scene of an accident, impaired charges, and driving without insurance. He is also known to be a frequent methamphetamine user. So we're going to quote here from a Vancouver Sun article. Quote, Sagmoen appeared to spend most of his youth in Maple Ridge, his parents owning a house on a leafy section of 248th Street from 1983 to 2007. He attended Harry Hoog Elementary School and Thomas Haney Secondary. While growing up with his two brothers, Sagmoen lived 15 kilometers away from the Blueberry and Cranberry Farm in Pitt Meadows run by his mother's side of the family. Later, his mother helped his grandparents and other relatives open a fruit wine business on the same property in 2004. In May of 2004, the Sagmoan parents and the three brothers bought a farm near Salmon Arm. 
In 2007, the property was transferred to just the parents' names. In that same year, the parents sold the family home in Maple Ridge and presumably moved into the farm on Salmon River Road. Also in 2007, Curtis Sagmoen bought his own condominium on Gilker Hill in Maple Ridge. This Maple Ridge connection will play out later in the episode. Six years after buying his Maple Ridge condominium, the banks foreclosed because Curtis's mortgage was not being paid. In 2013, the year of the foreclosure, there were two assaults against women on a trail near this townhouse. When asked if Ridge Meadows RCMP would now take another look at these assaults, they said, quote, We would not comment on any or current ongoing investigations. In recent years, neighbors said Sagmoen lived intermittently in a trailer on his parents' farm on Salmon River Road. This farm would become an integral part of the search for Tracy Genero. On October 19th, RCMP would execute a search warrant for the Sagmoen farm located on Salmon River Road near Salmon Arm. Police would truck in heavy digging equipment, food, tents, and porta-potties for the extensive search of the 24-acre farm and all of its outbuildings. This search would go on for three weeks. The Sagmoan family were forbidden from the property during the search. Now, as the farm is a working farm and a source of revenue for the family, police brought in outside contractors to care for the animals, which included chickens, cattle, horses, and even a couple of buffalo. On October 21st, just two days into the search, police would find human remains on the property. Soon after, authorities would reach out to the Genero family for DNA samples. Sadly, on November 1st, 2017, RCMP would identify the remains found at the Sagmoen farm as 18-year-old Tracy Genero. She had been missing for six months. It has not been released how long her remains were on the farm or how she died. I would assume that if she was indeed buried there uh, right after she died and her body was there for six months, the coroner would have a hell of a time figuring out how she died just because I, I imagine the decomp would be a pretty far along. Uh, so I, I hope that gets released eventually. But Yeah, I think right now they need to keep everything tight because they don't want to blow this investigation. Totally. Tracy's grandmother was quoted in a local paper about the discovery of Tracy. Quote, I don't want to believe, but have to believe this has happened to her. It is a nightmare. So here's a thing. As we said, Tracy Genero was last seen in Vernon on May 29th. It has been reported by Global News that on the day Genero went missing from Vernon, Sagmoen was pulled over by the RCMP in the city of Vernon and issued traffic tickets for headlight and taillight infractions. We assume he was driving his pickup and not the white work van. So far, the white work van is a bit of a red herring. At the time of the discovery of her remains, Curtis Sagmoen was not charged in any relation to Tracy Genero. The RCMP have stated that the investigation remains fluid. So yeah, let that sink in for a second. Her remains were found on the farm that Curtis lives on, but he hasn't been charged with anything relating to Tracy. And now I know 
just because her remains were found on his property doesn't necessarily mean that he's responsible for her death, but I don't know, it, it seems it seems too convenient. So it's clear that the authorities are being tight-lipped about Tracy's case. This is not unusual for a case of this severity, so we're not going to speculate or report on anything that may negatively impact the case or any trials. Segmon, however, has faced a litany of charges and allegations unrelated to Tracy Genero since the fall of 2017. We're going to do our best to break them down here. So the following is a list of allegations that have been brought forth about Curtis Segmon. In 2013, it is alleged that he assaulted a woman with a hammer. She was rumored to be a sex worker by the police. And that one was in Maple Ridge. July 1st, 2017, it is alleged that he attacked another sex worker, this one in the Okanagan. And just 18 days later, on July 19th, 2017, it is alleged that he used a spike belt to disable a woman's tires so that she was not able to leave. Yeah, again, I've heard that this one was another situation where he lured her to a an address mm-hmm. and then laid down the spike belts to disable her car so she couldn't leave. August 10th, a different sex worker is allegedly assaulted by Sagmoen. And, of course, as we know, on August 28th, a woman was threatened by Sigmoen with a gun while he was wearing a mask. So police, it seems, felt quite confident to go ahead with charges in some of these incidents because... On October 17th, RCMP would lay charges on him for the August 28th gun mask incident. On January 31st, 2018, they would lay charges on him for the July 1st and August 10th assaults. And then later uh, the same year, on February 8th of 2018, he would be charged in connection to the July 19th spike belt incident. Then on March 14th, 2018, he would be charged in relation to the 2013 Maple Ridge assault. Now, we know that that's a lot of dates and incidents, so we apologize for the information dump. Uh, We just wanted to paint the picture as accurate as possible. Obviously, this guy has a well-documented history of assaults against women and, more specifically, sex workers. So Sagmoen would be brought into the RCMP for questioning about the August 28th incident where a woman was threatened by a masked gunman beside his farm. And things got pretty spicy in the interview. We're going to quote from a CBC article here. Quote, Curtis Sagmoen, who is charged with multiple counts against sex trade workers, displayed a roller coaster of emotions during the intense first 24 hours of his detention while he was being questioned by the RCMP. Police investigators spoke to Sagmoen for several hours, with much of the conversation taking place in a small interview room at the RCMP detachment with Constable Richard McQueen. Detectives repeatedly asked Sagmoen about his alleged history of contacting sex workers. Initially, Sagmoen denies texting or phoning the women, but eventually admits he communicated with one he found on an adult internet webpage. Detectives asked him about guns and if he threatened an escort with a gun. Sagmoen repeatedly denies the claim, at one point saying, I never threatened anyone, and I haven't fired a firearm. The officer tells Sagmoen a woman he invited to the property was approached from behind by someone wearing a mask and carrying a gun, pointing it in the air. He says she ran away, but the tires of her truck were shot out. 
He asked Sagmoen about firearms and whether Sagmoen owns a 410 gauge shotgun like the one used in the offense. But Sagmoen tells the officers he doesn't have a 410 and didn't have access to one. During the interview, Sagmoen is sometimes sitting relaxed with his feet outstretched. At other times, he has slouched over or curled up in a chair with his head on a table. He repeatedly tells McQueen he is tired and wants to go back to his cell. McQueen, however, presses on. At one point, Sagmoen erupts in a fit of rage after McQueen tells him investigators will search his parents' house and home computer. He jumps up, lifts his chair off the ground, before McQueen and another officer calm him down. Quote, I don't even live in the house, he yells, adding, quote, What about my mom? Yeah, Sagmoen's outburst is captured in hours of video and audio interviews with the police officers. Over the last couple of years, Sagmoen would have a series of trials with mixed results, none of them relating to Tracy Genero, whose body was found on his farm. So for the 2013 incident in Maple Ridge, a trial heard that Sagmoen responded to an advertisement posted by a woman on Craigslist, and the pair got into a dispute over money, which led to her sustaining an injury to the back of the head. Sagmoen would be sentenced to 30 days in jail and two years probation, but his jail time is considered already served because he was remaining in custody on different charges. So because he is in jail awaiting other charges and other trials, he's considered already in jail, so the 30 days is basically nullified as time served. For the spike belt incident, Sagmoen was given an absolute discharge in a separate case in Vernon after pleading guilty to a single count of mischief. The discharge means no conviction will be placed on his record. Again, no prison time. He is simply serving what is called dead time, which is the time being served while awaiting trial. Yeah, and just to specify, this mischief charge was uh, calling a sex worker out to the farm and laying down a spike belt so that he could disable her car and trap her there. That's considered mischief. Mischief? (laughs) For the August 28th gun incident, a BC Supreme Court judge has found Curtis Sagmon guilty of wearing a mask with the intent to commit an indictable offense and for use of a firearm in an indictable offense. The judge described Sagmon's offenses as, quote, very serious. They are unprovoked, premeditated, almost inexplicable in the ambush of sex trade workers. She sentenced Sagmon to two years less a day in jail, because sentences below two years allow for probation. But again, this was time served, so he would do no time. Yeah, (laughs) Sagmoen instead will have a 36-month probation period with conditions. So with these trials, Sagmoen has not been sentenced to any meaningful time. But it's all legal and within the realm of the justice system. Yeah, so this leaves us with one last trial, and this is the assault of a woman on his farm on August 9th, 2017. So let's get into that trial and whether it brings us any closer to solving Tracy Genero's death after a quick break.
And we are back. On February 11, 2020, Sagmoen was found guilty of another assault involving a sex worker that he had lured to his farm. Yeah, we've come across a B.C. Supreme Court sentencing report that outlines the assault and the sentencing terms. The report is dated June 19, 2020. As far as we know, this is the most up-to-date information about Curtis Sagmoen. This assault took place just two months after Tracy Jedro went missing. This is from the court document. The victim will be referred to as J.L. On the evening of August 9, 2017, J.L., an escort providing dating services on an outcall basis, received a telephone call from Mr. Segmoen requesting her services. He asked her to attend his property on Salmon River Road, which is located between Falkland and Salmon Arm, British Columbia. J.L. put off the date until the following day because she did not want to attend that property at night. Upon her arrival on the following day, and at Mr. Segmoen's request, she got on the back of his ATV and drove her up a dirt road located on his property. After receiving from him what she considered to be ridiculous excuses for not being paid in advance for her services, J.L. got off the ATV and began walking back down the dirt road towards her car. A short time later, she heard the ATV approaching from behind at a high rate of speed. She did not look back. Assuming Mr. Segmon was going to drive by her, she stepped towards the side of the road to let the ATV pass. Instead of passing by her, the ATV struck J.L. from behind and she was thrown over the top of it. She spun once or twice in midair and landed flat and face down on the road. She suffered a large lump to her head, bruises, and what she describes as road rash on her leg as well as an injured tailbone. The judge accepted J.L.'s evidence of the event and found that the Crown had shown beyond a reasonable doubt that Mr. Sagmoen intentionally drove his ATV into J.L., likely because he was angry at her for walking away from him thereby thwarting whatever plans he had for her that day. J.L. attended court for the sentencing hearing and read a victim impact statement which she had prepared. In summary, she stated that the assault upon her by Mr. Segmoen has forever changed her life in a way that she could never have imagined or prepared for. It has caused her to endure both physical and emotional trauma in a variety of forms which she detailed during her statement. The pain from her physical injuries continues to this day. She struggles to find the right words to finish sentences or describe things. She often has trouble with focusing or completing tasks and is easily overwhelmed. She struggles with anxiety and fear. She has difficulty trusting people, and she constantly looks over her shoulder. Sagmoen has expressed through his counsel that he is very sorry that he harmed J.L. while driving the ATV in the manner he did. He acknowledges through his counsel that his acts were at the very least reckless with disregard for J.L.'s safety and personal security. He feels terrible about her injuries and has expressed his understanding that it could have been a great deal more serious. He has advised that he is grateful that J.L. did not suffer any additional harm. So the judge weighed out the circumstances before delivering her sentence. About his offenses and recent spree of attacks on women at the farm, 
She had this to say and also references the previous incidents at the farm. Quote, It is noteworthy that the victims in both the assault and the use of a firearm while committing indictable offenses were female escort workers who had advertised their services on the internet and had set up a meeting with Mr. Segmoen after he had contacted them by telephone. In the first case, Mr. Segmoen assaulted the victim following a dispute over payment for her services. In the second case, the incident occurred on the same property as the offense against J.L., When the victim arrived, Mr. Segmon was holding a shotgun and had his face covered by a bandana. When the victim attempted to leave, Mr. Segmon pointed the gun into her driver's side window. The victim then fled on foot. Later, a bullet hole was found in the front driver's tire and debris from a shotgun was found inside the tire. The incident occurred late at night. It is also noteworthy that the three offenses which resulted in convictions on December 20th, 2019, as well as the offense for which Mr. Segmon is now being sentenced, all occurred over a period less than one month between August 10th, 2017 and September 5th, 2017, at a time when Mr. Segmon was addicted to and using methamphetamine. She then asked Segmon to rise. She sentenced him to time served plus one day. Apparently the one day is for paperwork. Sorry, so ridiculous. She also sentenced him to three years of probation with a list of over 30 conditions that include a 10-year firearms ban, no drug use, provide DNA samples, not using the internet to find sex workers, not deleting text or call or search histories on his phone, and he must attend anger management classes. And so just like that, it was over. In the summer of 2020, Curtis Wayne Sagmoen walked out of court a free man. Out of all of his trials, he got time served, and twice he got three years probation, which run concurrently. Yeah, so to this day, he has not faced any charges in relation to Tracy Genero, whose remains were found on his property. Yeah, and because he spent so much time awaiting trial in jail, he's served no meaningful sentence because it was all just time served. Yeah, so for any of these assaults, he didn't really do any jail time. Just his time while waiting. Right. So throughout the trial, several protesters have made their voices heard on the steps of the Vernon courts, bearing signs and chanting slogans in remembrance of Genero and calling for justice for all missing and murdered women. Chants of gone but not forgotten and our sisters deserve justice, and all women's lives are sacred, rang out from the stairs outside the Vernon Courthouse. Jody Leon, an activist and organizer, has been a prominent voice at the protests. She organized many events of all sizes, including a 118-kilometer walk to raise awareness for the missing women of the Okanagan. A campaign she launched in 2017 focuses on 18-year-old Tracy Genero. This campaign is to help gather information for police about Genero's last days. She hopes that people will be moved to work for justice. We want to end off with a powerful quote from Jody. Quote, I would also say that I hope when people continue to hear these stories and face these realities, that this is really what's happening in the landscape of our world today. I hope women and men, people, will rise up and become advocates. Go on the walks, organize the walks, 
Talk to your MLAs about that you want the question of murdered and missing women to be addressed, that you want to make sure the police have the resources they need to do their job, that the families are supported in the way that they need to be when they're facing these traumatic events, and that violence never has a place to feel comfortable where we live, and that everyone becomes advocates and doesn't allow violence to become comfortable. That brings us to the end of this episode. We will keep watching and hoping that there is justice for Tracy Genero. Her family and the community deserves answers. It is worthy to point out that there hasn't been an increase in missing women in the Okanagan since Curtis Sagmoen entered the justice system. I don't know what that means. I just haven't seen a lot of reports about missing women up there. We encourage all of our listeners to research the Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women and Girls Inquiry, as well as the Highway of Tears. We need to do a better job of taking care of the people who fall into the shadows of our society. Thank you again for joining us. We will have a new episode for you in two weeks. Please tell a friend about True North True Crime. And until then, stay safe, everyone. Stay safe, you guys.